Hey, Jay, Wolverine gets his adamantium back, right? I mean, he has it in the present day. Yeah, sure he does. I mean, eventually. Voluntarily, though? It's hard to imagine him going for that process a second time. As voluntarily as incidents involving apocalypse tend to be. Ouch. So Wolverine was a horseman, then? Yep. Death. Sabretooth was up for the job, but Wolverine beat him in a fight, and well, you know how Apocalypse is. Survival of the scrappiest. So he pulled the adamantium out of Sabretooth and gave it to Wolverine. Wait a sec. Where did Sabretooth get an adamantium skeleton? You know, I don't actually recall off the top of my head. He just kind of popped up with it at Wolverine's wedding. Oh, to uh, Mariko Yoshida. No, Mariko's dead. So who is Logan marrying? Madam Hydra. What? I'm Jay Editon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 338 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome back to Government Land, full of government agents and a government pig. Miles, I, are, are the children of today going to get Invader Zim references? If they don't, it's no one's fault but their own. I suppose that's so. Well, that and the inexorable passage of time. Oh, that jerk. Well, anyway, this episode we are indeed talking about... X-Factor. Now, I checked and it's actually been kind of a while since we did an X-Factor episode. Okay, so X-Factor is a government-sponsored team of mutant heroes and villains. More and more villains lately. The team's senior member is definitely a hero, at least at this point, we're not in the Peter Milligan run yet, and that is Lorna Dane, Polaris, who brings her magnetic powers, green hair, and partially completed graduate degree to the team. X-Factor's government liaison and leader is tech wizard and occasional mystic Forge, and their previous liaison, the human Valerie Cooper, has been around more and more lately as well, effectively supervising Forge as well as playing her own role on the team. Recent hires also include Kyle Dibney, Wild Child, a wild but not really, ugly but not really, permanent loan from the Canadian government's Alpha Flight. Also not really a child. There's a lot wrong with the way Wild Child is described. Also, Raven Darkholm, the shape-shifting supervillain mystique who's only helping out because the alternative is about a million years of prison time and or having her brain fried by a magnetic shot collar. Lastly, there's Shard, a hard light hologram based on a mutant super cop from an alternate future. She used to live inside a bracelet? Okay, it's a long story. Point is, this is a heavily jewelry-based team. Immediately before being involuntarily recruited by the government, Mystique was severely injured by a vicious clawed attacker while on a sneaking mission. We still don't know for sure who that attacker was. Meanwhile, the presumed dead supervillain Sabretooth, a vicious clawed attacker himself, has also been involuntarily recruited by the government. Hmm. And that brings us to X-Factor number 122, The Faces of Truth. Written by Howard Mackey, penciled by Jeff Matsuda, inked by Al Milgram, colored by Glynis Oliver, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. 
In fact, that's going to be the same creative team that we see for the following two issues as well, so we're actually not going to repeat it. It's a Christmas miracle! Not Christmas at all. Oh, well, that's part of why it's so miraculous. Jeff Matsuda is the book's new regular penciler. He'll be with the book for a little bit over a year. His style? I don't know, I kind of think of him as like a Joe Matarera light. Maybe. He seems very much to be trying to do Matarera's style, and honestly, it is not doing him any favors. I do think that Matarera is one of those artists who, and I realize this is a strange comparison, but who, like Alan Davis, really nobody's going to stack up very well next to yeah, I think Davis's style is a little bit easier to sort of inject bits of into your own look than Matarera's is. Like, for him, I feel like it's kind of an all or nothing. That may be true, yeah. But Matuda's been around for a while. In fact, we've covered some of his work. He's drawn X-Factor a couple of times before. He drew Fatal, who will show up in this arc over in X-Men. He did a Generation X annual story. And he drew Magneto and the Magnetic Men, number one. That was an Amalgam comic. Jay, do you remember Amalgam from the 90s? I do not remember Amalgam from the 90s, but I remember Amalgam from having read about it more recently than the 90s. Yeah, so Amalgam, listeners, if you're unfamiliar, was a line of, I believe, just number ones that was all, like, hybrid characters and teams based on mixes of Marvel characters and DC characters. And so Magneto and the Magnetic Men, I assume, was like the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, but also the Metal Men from DC. Yes, um, the, the only one I remember off the top of my head is Dark Claw, which is what you get when you cross Batman and Wolverine. Oh, yeah, I mainly remember, I believe, a later number one, uh, Dark Claw Adventures, because that was kind of based off the Batman Adventures comic, which was based on the Batman cartoon from the 90s. And so it was Wolverine slash Batman drawn in that very Bruce Tim Batman the Animated Series style, and it was a great cover. Never read it. Oh, my. Okay, well, uh, all of that is neither here nor there, because where here is is a heavily armed, thunderstorm-navigating chopper, piloted by some seriously overdressed soldiers, and that's where Val Cooper is. She's calling Forge on the, you know, video phone thingum. I mean, can we just say 90s FaceTime? Yeah, we can say 90s FaceTime. But seriously, her soldier buddies, they look like they're freaking cosplaying Gundams or something. Their armor has so many fins and gadgets and bulky armor bits, but with gaps on the sides of their head for their 90s hair to sort of floop out. Well, none of the armor bits seem to really serve much purpose. Like, they're not really covering anything all that vital. Maybe they're worried about falling out of the plane, and they figure if they can make themselves less aerodynamic, they'll fall more slowly and be fine. But why the fins, then? In case they fall in the ocean. Ah, I see. Well, anyway, Val Cooper is calling Forge because she and the government found out who attacked Mystique back at the dam that X-Factor was investigating in the X-Men Prime one-shot right after the Age of Apocalypse. She's not going to tell Forge who it was, but she will tell him not to tell Mystique. Which doesn't work out so well, because the Forge on this phone call, like roughly everyone else in the mid-90s, is actually Mystique. 
So I love this. Jay, when we were talking about the backstory earlier in the episode, you alluded to Mystique having a sort of shock collar thing. I think it might be a microchip. I'm not sure. But the point is, whenever she tries to shapeshift into one of the X-Men characters, you know, from X-Men, X-Factor, whatever, if she tries to stay in that form for more than five seconds, she gets zapped. She can't stay that way. And that's to prevent her from doing her usual Mystique thing and manipulating everybody into doing bad stuff. So it's actually super clever because she's taking Val's call in a thunderstorm, a lightning storm that Val's chopper is in, which means the video keeps fritzing in and out. And so every time the video fritzes out, she shifts back into her mystique form for just a second to reset the five second timer and then back to forge by the time the video comes back, which is a great concept. And once again, makes me really question the judgment of the people who designed this thing. Every control mechanic and every device meant to make a supervillain play along with the good guys is bad. There's always some kind of exploitable loophole, and if this were real life, that would bother me, but this is a comic book, and so I think it's great. We don't get to hang out too long in this lightning storm, because every issue can be someone's first, and it is time for a danger room cold open. Well, okay, a forest outside the base that X-Factor hangs out in cold open. The point is, we have Wildchild and Polaris tussling. We get to know them, they're doing their tracker versus powerhouse thing, and Polaris of course wins, because she's just horrifyingly powerful and a very experienced superhero. Yeah, that's a kind of cruel mismatch. That's like... We're going to put this mouse up against this tank. Yeah, it's kind of like, I don't know, Jubilee versus Dark Phoenix or something. Although I guess Jubilee does have lots of untapped potential. Wild Child, I, uh, I don't think he does. Ouch. What he does have, as is Polaris, is a new costume. That's right, just like in our last Excalibur episode, we are getting some 1996 new outfits for most of the team. Uh, let's start with Wild Child. Let's talk about his outfit. They, they took away his trench coat and gave him an undercut. Basically that. I mean, his costume is a little bit different. Now, instead of being an orange bodysuit, it's an orange and red bodysuit, which is also sleeveless. And uh, yeah, yeah, he got a really unflattering, but also really mid-90s haircut. I will say that Jeff Matsuda, now that he's taken over the book, does make Wild Child look more animalistic and, for lack of a better word, uglier. Like, he looks a little bit less like a, quote, normal human. And given how much the plot of the book has really, really played up what a big deal that is to him, it's nice to see it actually reflected in the art for a change. Yeah, absolutely. I like Polaris's outfit a lot. Not as much as I liked the outfit it is replacing the yellow top with an asymmetrical closure and black pants that she wore for far too briefly. But this one's pretty cool, too. Uh, how would you describe it, Jay? She's got she's got a blue bodysuit with kind of a loose light blue top and yellow armored gauntlets and a harness. Uh, the X logo's on the back of the back of her hands, but not quite full gloves. Uh, her hair is, is now in sort of a chin length bob. Her hair reminds me a little of how it looked in The Gifted, actually. Really, it's much longer in The Gifted. I guess that's true. Do I, was it just shorter in the first season? Am I totally misremembering? Well, regardless, I kind of like the outfit. I like that it's got a little bit of that armored look to it, which is very much a mid-90s thing. It's got that structure to it, but the fact that the top is a little bit loose and flowing, I don't know. I think it reflects Lorna herself a little better. She's never been a super, super controlled character. And maybe I'm giving the design too much credit, but I kind of dig it. Even if I dig the yellow top and black pants better. 
Shard is going to get a simplified version of her previous look, kind of in line with the team look. Spoiler, Shard's coming back. She is. Val Cooper, who is also going to pretty much join the team at this point, she's got this tight blue bodysuit with random yellow accents and asymmetrical straps. Honestly, it reminds me of nothing more than a less fiddly version of Cyclops' 90s look. Yeah, except with a perpetual headband instead of the visor, which is a choice. I gotta say, I don't like action hero Val. I like her so much more as a bureaucrat. I completely agree, yeah. It is a weird turn for the character. I understand they had to find a way to get her back onto the book, or they chose to find a way to get her back onto the book, after X-Factor told her to fuck off when she kept one too many government secrets from them. But the idea of her showing up with giant guns and pouches is a strange one. I mean, her showing up with them isn't that strange. Her being allowed to stick around with them is. Uh, there is that. Uh, Forge, the actual leader of X-Factor, uh, he's got the same outfit, but he's got a crew cut now. He cut off his awesome ponytail. Really? Because I remember seeing him with a ponytail in this arc. Oh, well, maybe it's like an ultra-extreme mullet where he just has the ponytail and the rest is shaved? I'm not really sure, but I liked it better before. A crew mullet, as it were? Hmm, crew mullet. The worst kind of mullet. Mystique is still wearing her basic traditional outfit. She's got a leotard rather than the dress these days, but, you know, she shapeshifts. It's her call. You know, when your skin is that shade of blue, you learn that you look good in white. Why would you ever wear anything else? Val does make it to Fall's Edge, X-Factor's headquarters, but by the time X-Factor finds her, it's clear that something went poorly. Val is tied up, her Gundam-esque soldiers are unconscious, possibly because they were still too aerodynamic and the fall knocked them out, hard to say, and the combat chopper they were in, yeah, that's gone, as is Mystique. I wonder what could have knocked out all of those other people. <laughs> so Mystique is in fact off to the Belforge Dam, the place where she was attacked by this mysterious attacker that Val now claims to have knowledge of. And so it's uh, X-Factor's job to go after her. Again, this will be the second time they have tracked down Fugitive Raven Darkholm at the Belforce Dam. God, how many times have they tracked her down, had to track her down total so far? Uh, quite a few. That's, I think, half the team's mission statement right there. They're a government-sponsored group of mutants whose job it is to hunt down Mystique, who will perpetually betray them. I don't know why they keep putting her on teams. Like, she's... the, the cost-benefit has to be so bad. It really, really is, and I mean, given that Sabretooth is going to be joining the team at this point as well, like, don't get me wrong, I think uh, the U.S. government has made many, many poor decisions over the years, but continually filling up your government-sponsored mutant team with proven supervillains who are either serial betrayers or serial killers, I feel like that's among their worst decisions. And the thing is, this is one of those things that would read as kind of funny fiction, except the last administration kind of killed satire. I know! I mean, the Onion did their best, but goddammit. Well, anyway, on the upside, the inside of X-Factor's current airplane is great. It is so unnecessarily complicated. Like, Forge is on this kind of throne with a bunch of little gizmos on his hands and feet elevated above everybody else's jet stations. It kind of looks like the inside of a freaking Jaeger from Pacific Rim, and I am here for this utterly inefficient techno design. Yeah, I really like the consistent fact that 
fancy aircraft in the Marvel Universe are designed, at least on the interior, by people who have never, as far as I can tell, seen the interior of any kind of aircraft. Oh yeah, no, that would just uh, predispose them to utilize the boring ideas of other people, rather than the sky being the limit. I mean, the, the patient zero there is obviously the blackbird that seats eight. Yes, yes, exactly. It just went all uphill from there. By the time X-Factor gets to the Belforge Dam, Mystique is already there. She, when she arrived, found dozens of slaughtered researchers. So, okay, between the shredding of these researchers and of Mystique herself earlier, who was clawed very thoroughly, and Sabretooth being such a focal player in the book recently, there's definitely this implication that, well, it's Sabretooth. Especially when he grabs Mystique and whispers threateningly in her ear with his claws to her throat, which is one of his three signature moves, and in fact the only one that does not actually involve murder. Mm-hmm. So they tussle, supervillain versus supervillain, attacking each other with kicks and with macho posturing. I mean, okay, Mystique is absolutely macho, arguably as much so as Sabretooth, her ex. Well, yeah, she's shorter, she has more to prove. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's Wolverine's deal. And the great thing about macho posturing is that you can say a lot of words while still being vague enough that we, the readers, get no information as to what's going on. Now, I mentioned, or, or, or you mentioned, one of us mentioned the absolute uselessness of Mystique's collar as a failsafe. And as it turns out, Sabretooth's is even less useful, which is saying something. Yeah, it's supposed to zap him whenever he attacks anybody he's not supposed to attack, but it doesn't prevent Mystique from getting slashed by him when she uh, goes ahead and mentions their mutual son, Graydon. I believe that is because he is on a mission for which his collar has been turned off. It does zap him, though. That's the thing. Like, it doesn't zap him enough, but it does zap him. So it's very unclear what's happening here. Eh, that's fine. Yeah, no, he does explicitly mention that he's off the leash for this one. Then why did he get zapped? I don't know, maybe he just was uh, shuffling his feet on carpet and it was like a, just a static electricity thing. Or maybe there are... The, the, the collar is turned down and there are some things it doesn't override and some things it overrides less vehemently than it otherwise would. Either way, it's obviously not a sufficient control mechanism. Dear the government, I have many questions. Love, Miles. P.S. You know what they are. When X-Factor finally does show... Val Cooper is surprised. She knew Sabretooth was working for the government, but he was supposed to be on a different mission. She did, of course, neglect to mention to X-Factor, despite saying that she would keep no more secrets from them, that Sabretooth was A, alive, and B, working for the government. You know, Val. Yeah, I I, I figure if X-Factor doesn't just assume she's lying as a default at this point, um, they have learned nothing. Sabretooth, meanwhile, takes the opportunity of meeting X-Factor to talk shit about Wildchild. Apparently they have a past working together and they became rivals at some point. I should point out, this was never a thing in, say, an Alpha Flight comic where Wildchild had been, as far as I know anyway. I think this is just the book trying to reestablish the Sabretooth-Wildchild dynamic, or a version of it, from Age of Apocalypse. I mean, you gotta remember, too, this is an era where a lot of characters are being given retconned pasts with Sabretooth, or having minimal pasts with Sabretooth fleshed out further. Marvel was working really hard to make him a big deal at this point, with limited success, but you see him written into a lot of backstories. It's true, it's true. 
But I don't know. I think part of it here is also specifically that Age of Apocalypse thing. I mean, we see Havoc getting captured and being sort of possessed to be evil and working for Dark Beast, which was kind of his deal in the Age of Apocalypse. So, I don't know. I feel like it's it can be lots of things. It can be two things. Speaking of backstory, when Sabretooth and Polaris are fighting, he also brings up that they were teammates before. Now, he's talking about Malice, or at least a Malice-possessed Polaris who was on the Marauders. But that raises some questions for me, because wasn't the Sabretooth at that point a clone? I think that's one of those things where the only answer is, it depends on who you ask. Different writers have gone back and forth on which Sabretooth was the real Sabretooth, which was a Mr. Sinister-created clone, whether perhaps all the Living Ones are clones at this point, whether it even matters, so I don't know. But apparently this version of Sabretooth remembers Malice, or possibly did some reading and is pretending he remembers Malice. I'd like to think that the one that the power pack took down relatively easily was the real one. Yeah, it turns out the real Sabretooth is just kind of a chump. And when Mr. Sinister was making Sabretooth clones, he's like, oh, geez, no, no, no. These guys need upgrades. Seems reasonable. Now, Sabretooth continues to vaguely posture and threaten everyone as they accuse him of mass murder and says, well, they weren't supposed to show up. So he guesses he's going to have to kill him now, too. That's the end. That's that's it for X Factor. They weren't even supposed to be here today. And that brings us to X-Factor number 123. It begins again, presumably referring to the book beginning again, despite the fact that all of the characters have been killed. Hey, wait a minute. Weren't they killed by the adversary recently? God damn it. That's just what X-Factor does. Previous incarnation of X-Factor busted through walls. This incarnation of X-Factor dies. Well, except it turns out they don't because the jumping at them while yelling about how they have to die thing from the last page of the last issue. So he was actually jumping at the bad guy behind them that they didn't see sneaking up and saying that that bad guy was the one that had to die. How would you describe the visual of said bad guy? (sighs) Imagine that you told a six-year-old in 1997 to describe a cool, powerful bad guy. Then you just drew what he described. I mean, that that sounds kind of great, actually. And I think you're kind of right. Like, I was thinking he was a cross between Magneto and the Predator, but I think you and I just use different words to say the same thing. He's got, you know, this metallic armor that's mostly colored red. He also looks a little bit alien. It's kind of unclear how much of that is his face having been altered or him just being a little inhuman looking and how much is the armor. We do find out that he's been modified by the government, a shadowy organization that's kind of like the government. It's never really clear, so it's hard to say, but uh, he's very, very large. He's very, very spiky. Um, He's shiny, which you might as well be, and uh, here he is, posturing against Sabretooth. Anyway, fighting the Hound was Sabretooth's actual mission because it was the Hound, not Sabretooth, that killed all those dudes and also that almost killed Mystique back in X-Men Prime. Now, the Hound being a proper villain, villain splains because after he stabbed Mystique... Initial contact with her. First blood. Broke off layers of programming. Sent me spinning out of control. She may hold answers to why this has happened to me. She might know who it is that turned me into this thing. So he was just hanging around at the dam just in case she decided to come back to where she got stabbed. Hey, hey, the Hound's main job is to be big and shiny, not to, uh, think. Now, Sabretooth 
continues threatening X-Factor. This is his mission. They're messing with it. This is the point where, I, I did remember correctly, this is the point where he says that his collar is is absolutely turned off for this mission. So it must have just been static electricity in the last issue. Or something, or some kind of reaction with Mystique's collar. I heard to say, there are so many collars, I could have sworn it was an implant. You know, whatever. This is not an arc that I think invites uh, in-depth examination of detail and continuity. I can't remember whether it's actually an implant or whether I'm confusing it in my head with Dark Rain when she did have a microchip implanted in her head, definitely. So many microchips and so many heads. Anyway, the Hound. So let's talk a little bit about the Hound. We learn from his narration that he is a mutant who's programmed to kill all other mutants. We know that he doesn't really know much about his past. We know that he can use either technology or possibly his own powers, it's unclear, to sort of counter the powers of everybody around him, which is very Sentinel-like. That's kind of cool. So this is all consistent with what we've seen of the Hound program in the Days of Future Past timeline. Exactly. It exactly is. And that's kind of cool. I think that's a good move for this book to be taking. Like, we know that it was political stuff that led to the Days of Future Past Dark Future in the first place. It was, in fact, Mystique assassinating a human politician, Senator Kelly. We know that the Hounds were, like you alluded to, in the future, mutants who hunt down mutants for, effectively, the government. So, I love that Howard Mackey's doing this, and that makes me really wish that this was followed up on, like, way more than it actually was. Yeah, everyone is putting out hints at a swerve towards Days of Future Past around this time um, in the lead-up to Onslaught, and no one follows up on it. We are going to see the Hound again in an Uncanny X-Men annual right around this time, but uh, yeah, that's it, and we'll get other explanations for the way the Hound program started at different times. Do you think the Hound knows Carl the Executioner? Mm, Carl and the Hound, coming soon to TBS. TBS even still a station? I don't know. I have no idea. I just get streaming services. So, X-Factor can't beat the Hound. But as we've learned, I think most memorably from Sunspot, if something is literally impossible, it just means you have to try harder. Polaris does exactly that. Now, if this were the standard structure, she would learn to fly at this point, but she already knows how. So, until now, she was always holding back never pushing into those uncharted areas of her body, mind, and spirit which would draw from the untapped reservoir of genetic power within. And she kicks his ass. I mean, who is she, Iceman? This just keeps happening in X-Men, but, you know, the thing is, I really like this trope. I really love just the triumph of willpower and really wanting to protect your friends and doing the right thing, and so you just manifest, like, new shiny types of lasers. I I'm never going to complain about that. So, now that the Hound's out of the way, it's time to do some actual reconnaissance. Find out who sent him, what his deal is. We find that Belforge is indeed a government genetic research facility. It created the Hound, but apparently the Hound was scheduled to be destroyed after going berserk after finding Mystique the first time. More interestingly, there's a reference in there to a name that we know in the Earth-811 timeline was affiliated with the Hound program, and that is Rory Campbell. Now, in this timeline right now, he's with Excalibur, doing his level best not to turn into Ahab, who again was, was the leader of the Hound program, but it seems like he might be slipping. 
Alas, this also isn't really followed up upon too much. God damn it. Well, there's no time to think about any of that frustration because suddenly some FBI ninjas or something show up to take the hound away and tell X-Factor to back the fuck off. Man, the government was really, really invested in bondage hoods during this era. You know, people are into what they're into. I bet those bondage hoods each cost like a million dollars. Stupid government funding waste. They're probably not great for visibility either, which seems like a problem for ninja stuff. Well, what can you do? X-Factor does try to come back. In fact, they bring the aforementioned Senator Kelly, who has since become more sympathetic to the mutant cause. And when they arrive, there's no genetic research facility here. Or rather, there is, but it's an idyllic, beautiful farm with red barns and cows and charmingly uneven fences, and all they do is research cows. You mentioned Senator Kelly, and that reminds me of an ad that appeared in this comic book that I saw. It was kind of great. Oh, yeah? Um, and it is it is an ad for a specific upcoming villain saying, you know, you thought Senator Kelly hated mutants. You thought Graydon Creed was a big jerk. Wait till you get a load of Bastion. Wow, yeah, it's easy to forget that we haven't even hit Onslaught, and Marvel was already setting up Operation Zero Tolerance hard. I love that they just straight up had an ad for a villain, though. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, it's uh, I think they're sort of his his hype man. Like, check out this asshole. He's the worst. Yeah. Buy our comics. See him do bad things to characters you care about. It's not just the government that has their own random ninjas, because a couple of cyber ninja types stealth into X-Factor's Falls Edge HQ while X-Factor is gone. In their own metal boots, I guess they took some uh, hints from Gambit. They're trying to grab all of Forge's data for their mysterious bosses. Wait, are they not government ninjas? I thought they might be. It's unclear. I think at this point, the book is sort of dancing around just how much the government is, in fact, opposing their own team, X-Factor, and how much of these groups are outside organizations. And I kind of like that. I like that it's just all the different branches going up against each other in different ways, all the different alphabet organizations, as it were. We talked about how that feels a little X-Files-y when Excalibur does it, and I think it does here as well, just a different angle of the X-Files, and I'm kind of here for it. Yeah, I like X-Factor at some degree of odds with the government. It definitely makes them more sympathetic as a team during this era. Absolutely, yeah, especially as they are increasingly composed of unstable supervillains. As opposed to their previous composition of unstable heroes. Well, anyway... Uh, the cyber ninjas don't really get very far because Holo Shard, who has mysteriously come back to life after being annihilated by the adversary in a previous story, scares them away with energy blasts and banter. She's fine. Meanwhile, at Great and Creed's campaign headquarters, we find out that Creed has been taking bribes from whoever's behind the Hound program, who claims that they are keeping Mystique alive to keep him in line. Also really fun, you know, more agencies going against other agencies. Here's a candidate for the President of the United States, and he's in deep with anti-mutant super people. I mean, of course he is, it's Marvel. And his parents are both mutant supervillains. Both of whom are now on X-Factor because Sabretooth, after this mission, officially joins the team. Ugh. And that brings us to X-Factor 124, Future Memories. So, 
This issue is mostly built around a training session in X-Factor's Hazard Chamber. The variations on Danger Room are stretching a little thin at this point. That's just a straight-up synonym. I mean, what's next? The Perilous Parlor? The Uh-Oh Space? I like the Uh-Oh Space. The Unsafe Habitat. The Horrible House. The Bad Idea Hut. You're kind of expanding from the concept of room. I'm just saying, you do what you have to. And it was the 90s. Everything got bigger. It's like Texas, but with more pouches and the same number of guns, I guess. Now, the Hazard Chamber runs fancy VR programs specifically on CD-ROM. The 90s! My favorite part of the Hazard Chamber as they do VR training is that they have these official VR suits, which I guess the room can more easily read the badass-looking black and red outfits, but it kind of just looks like they're doing mocap, which just makes me imagine them being covered in a bunch of little ping-pong balls. I saw this video once of cats doing mocap for video games, and so the cats themselves have all the little tiny ping pong balls, but even smaller on them so they can be properly motion captured, and they're very good cats. Aww. Are they just doing cat stuff? Just doing cat stuff. I mean, you know, trainers are leading them through certain courses so they can get certain types of motion, but it's just cat stuff. You know, jumping around, getting distracted, licking their genitals. It's great. Aww. Good job, small friends. Yes, capture that motion. The licking the genitals part tends not to make it into too many video games. Maybe that's for the best. Speaking of genital licking... Wait, no. Uh, so X-Factor is having Sabretooth train with a VR-powered X-Factor, presumably to keep him from hurting anyone real. It's interesting to note that the training program is DOFP2013, or, you know, Days of Future Past, 2013, 2013 being the year that Days of Future Past was supposed to take place in. So the book is very aware of what's going on, but that makes me wonder, is Forge aware of the details of Days of Future Past? I guess it might make some sense that he would be. Like, not the Days of Future Past name, unless he's a Moody Blues fan, but the fact that it took place in 2013, like when Kate Pride's consciousness came back, I'm sure she mentioned that fact to enough people that it made it back to Forge. Well, that also raises the question of whether Forge named this program, which is a mystery that we're going to get to a little bit further on. So Val is is sitting in on this, and she is hoping that Sabretooth is going to cross a line in training, and she can use that to get him kicked off the team. This seems to me like very shaky logic, because they let him on the team knowing his full resume and history, so I, I kind of doubt there's much he could subsequently do to get kicked off. Yeah, he's brutally slaughtered hundreds, if not maybe even thousands of people, often just for kicks. I mean, what can you even do at that point? This is a man who definitely knows what both babies and most endangered species taste like. Especially baby members of those endangered species. That's right. Ah, I mean, okay, I kind of get it. I assume the government figures that their shot collar will be enough to keep Sabretooth in line, and to his dubious credit, he did seem to be mostly on task at his mission at the uh, research center in the last couple of issues. But, uh, yeah, it's just so unwise. I do want to, once again, apologize to Val Cooper, though. We've talked a lot about her terrible decisions as far as who she lets on teams, and that's all true, but every step of the way, she opposes Sabretooth being here, so at least she has learned something over the years since, you know, Freedom Force. And now we know where the line falls. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, Sabretooth, however, is having a great time as he yells, Get with the program! Let loose! Chomp and stomp! Chomp and stomp! I'm reminded of that old Doom comic from back in the day. Rip and tear! Rip and tear your guts! You are huge! That means you have huge guts! If anyone hasn't read the Doom one-shot from the 90s, I'm sure it's online somewhere. We can't officially recommend pirating. Maybe you can find it in a quarter bin. I don't know. But it is delightfully bananas. Less delightfully bananas is the Danger Room program. It is glitching out all over the place. The setting is a wrecked New York that Forge doesn't remember programming in, and partway through the program, Shard shows up. This is the first time anyone on the team has seen her since she died fighting the adversary, because they weren't around when she stopped the invaders. Uh, Wild Child is euphoric, but Shard is concerned because she recognizes what they fought before as the start of the Hound program. She needs to talk to Forge about this, figure it out. That's part of why she's interrupted. Forge has his own concerns. He doesn't want Val to send the danger room session, sorry, sorry, the, the, the hazard chamber session to her shadowy bosses because he's not ready for anyone else to know about Shard, plus whatever else went wrong, which he's still trying to figure out and which might be a result of, again, the the hackers who, who came in and invaded, who Shard mentions moved around like they knew the place, so may in fact have been government goons. As he says... If there's a connection between her future and our present, it's safer if we're the only ones who know about it for now. We should point out, the future that Shard and, of course, her brother Bishop are from, that's not Days of Future Past. It does seem to be a timeline that takes place after Days of Future Past, but they're technically divergent timelines from one another. They have different multiversal numbering sets. For all intents and purposes, though, yes, where the Bishop siblings are from is pretty much after Days of Future Past, so they've heard about all the horrible things that happened then, in addition to the horrible things that happen in their own time, what with all the M plates and the Fitzroys and stuff. Jay, I do want to talk about this dark future looming over X-Factor, because I think like we alluded to earlier, this really is the equivalent of the Days of Future Tense alternate future looming over Excalibur with all the Black Air Douglock stuff that we talked about last episode. I don't know, do you think... Do you think this works for X-Factor? And if not, do you think it's a good idea? Is it just execution? Uh, what's your take on it? I think X-Factor's connections to those future timelines haven't been built up enough. I know that Shard is there, and she is from, you know, a far future timeline, but she is not particularly traumatized by or even unhappy about that timeline. She's completely cool with it. And we definitely don't have a team who've collectively seen for themselves what the impacts of those timelines can be. So for me, this kind of falls flat where it works pretty well in Excalibur. I can definitely see that. Yeah, Warren Ellis definitely took some time to build up the threat of Black Air. And even though Days of Future Tense was just a one-shot, it was so vivid. And what ends up happening in the Excalibur story we're currently in the middle of is just so similar to it that it works. And here... I think it's a great concept. Like, if you're going to build up to Days of Future Past, if you're going to talk about the Hound program and that sort of thing, then, yeah, X-Factor is totally the book for it, because Days of Future Past is a timeline based on the government getting more and more anti-mutant and making bad decisions that end up biting everybody in the ass. But I think this is a criticism I have of this run in general. It's got cool concepts, 
And for whatever damn reason, a lot of them are just really never developed, or at least never adequately developed. And I don't know if that's just because of editorial interference, because there were crossovers happening every three weeks, it seemed. Whether that's just how Howard Mackey handles an ongoing series, I don't know. So going on with the issue, Polaris is not happy with the state of the team. She is really, really concerned about the directions it's going in, and post-session she tells Forge that she's planning to leave and she heads out for some alone time, only to meet up with former X-Factor member Random. Hey, it's Random. It's the Lobo pastiche who ended up being revealed as a teenager who only posed as a Lobo pastiche because he was insecure. Now, he is there on orders from Dark Beast conveyed via Fatal, and he's supposed to be spying on X-Factor, but after capturing Havoc for Dark Beast, he's rethinking his role in the whole thing, as he is generally wont to do when he starts working for supervillains. Well, part of it, I think, is that here we see him talking to Polaris, and he and Polaris genuinely do have a bond. It's sort of unclear whether he had romantic feelings toward Polaris or just liked her a lot, but she clearly likes and trusts him a lot as well, and... I dig that. I dig that on this increasingly iffy team that Lorna's on, like, the one connection she feels is really still genuine is the mercenary whose heart of gold she has just barely glimpsed. I don't know if it's if it's entirely her, because we really first saw him voice his concerns, and we first saw those doubts arise when he was he was talking to the apparently comatose Havoc earlier. I mean, sometimes when I'm feeling down, I go talk to a naked man in a tube. It's just the thing to do. It sounds like a euphemism, but I'm not sure for what. Like, gotta go <laughs> yeah, talk no. to the naked man in the tube. It's like, no, no, I mean, Alex Summers, he's naked, he's, he's in a tube, he's, he's over there. I'm talking to him. We have good times. <laughs> good times in Dark Beast's lab. I don't think any of those times are good. Maybe for Dark Beast, but his tastes are messed up. So Lorna's concerns at this point echo a lot of mine um, about the book as a whole. It feels kind of off the rails like it's it's veered so far from the central premise and story that i'm honestly having a lot of trouble caring about it i think that maybe a more adept creative team could have made the shift in premise work really well could have made it really really fascinating but here it just feels like it's veering off the road yeah i i completely agree and I don't know. I mean, this is certainly a period where Marvel was was having some trouble. This is around the time Marvel went bankrupt. Like, they were going so hard into all of these secrets and references and retcons. And, like, I love that stuff. But I don't know. Maybe if you do that, the book becomes unapproachable. Not just for new readers, but in this case, like, you and I are steeped in continuity. We have been obsessing over this shit, like, since we started the podcast, and to a lesser extent, for many, many years. And I agree, it just, it doesn't land. So on that note, I guess let's pivot to listener questions. Mega Geeks Can Be Cool asks on Tumblr, My friend is setting up a D&D game, and I want to make a character's basically beast. I was wondering what you think would be a good class to go with. My character race is going to be Bugbear with a customized origin to swap the racial bonuses to intelligence and dexterity. That is a hard one, and an intriguing one. So the way I look at it, so much of Beast's character concept is duality. I mean, he's this strong and agile guy physically, but he's brilliantly intellectual mentally. And aside from the occasional virtual molecular jungle gym... I love that part that we talked about recently. Those two sides usually don't directly overlap with one another. 
So for this question, I actually got in touch with my Dungeons and Dragons storyteller and friend of the podcast, Allison Barber. So here's kind of what we ended up talking about. You basically have to translate Beast's scientific skills into something D&D-ish. Probably magic. I mean, you could make him an artificer, which is sort of the most science-based traditional D&D class you can have, or at least modern traditional. But I don't know that that would really have that duality that I was just talking about. So if you do decide to go with magic, the first place I went was one of any number of magically-based fighters. I think the Eldritch Knight is one that still exists in 5th edition, a knight who uses spells. But that character isn't as research-based as, say, a wizard would be, and I feel like Beast has to be research-based. Then I remembered, you mentioned that you were going for dexterity as the character's physical stat instead of strength, and that actually increases your options. Bladesingers or Warbards, those are both in-your-face combatants who also study magic. With them, it's musical magic, but I feel like Hank is enough of a showman that that would be totally fine in a D&D setting. If what you want to focus on, though, is the sometimes present angst that Beast feels about those two sides of himself, it doesn't come up often these days, but it did a lot back in the day, you could always multi-class. I mean, barbarians are badass fighters, but they can't concentrate on maintaining spells while they're raging, which, you know, would provide a bit of a drawback, which could be good for that aspect of the character. So maybe you could multi-class Barbarian Artificer, where the Artificer half-focuses on non-combat and utility spells to represent Hank's research side when combat's not happening. You could do Fighter Wizard for the same reason. Stats are going to be a little hard to optimize, just because physical characters and mental characters uh, tend to mostly be separate, but that's part of the fun here. Uh, you could also use the sage background for your character, have it be more of a fluff thing than a crunch thing. That would let the character always know where to find the info that they're looking for, could add a lot to non-combat situations. You could always homebrew something. There are so many options. The most important part, really, though, is to think about what aspects of the character you really cl click with, and figure out mechanics for those. If you try to find mechanics for everything Beast has ever been, it's going to be impossible, but just uh, pick a story, pick a personality trait, or whatever, and there's probably going to be something for that. So, there's a very long answer that was in no way definitive. I hope it helped. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, Are there any characters that you feel serve the larger story dead more than alive? Not necessarily that you think should be gone forever, but that maybe have more impact in memory, or have the potential to. In a floating timeline where the characters have come to understand that death is relative even before Krakoa, can the idea exist? So first of all, um, the person who asked this question mentioned that they were just about to graduate from high school when it came in. I assume they just have, so congratulations. Oh yeah, congrats. Second, oh gosh, this is a complicated question. I think the resurrection cue, the idea of the resurrection cue in Krakoa, is in some ways a metatextual acknowledgement of our explanation for the variable revolving door of comic book death especially as its mechanics remain a mystery to the characters. As for specific characters, gosh, the first one who comes to mind is definitely, definitely Charles Xavier. And I'm not saying that because I don't like him. Um, I, I think he's a really interesting character, but I think that he's a character who is narratively significantly more interesting through the perspectives of the people around him and the people who've grown up with his legacy. He's he's you know he's got he's got a lot to say and he's he's interesting in in all of his own ways when he's alive but when he's not around for whatever reason then we're left with the interpretations of him 
that other characters have developed. And I think that makes for a much, much more interesting mix. Yeah, I'm thinking of the Schism era, uh, where Cyclops and Wolverine each had their kind of dueling versions of Xavier's dream and what they thought it should lead to. That was phenomenal. Well, or post-Ocelot, or any number of periods when he just hasn't been around for whatever reason. In general, though, I think any character who's spent a long time front and center is, for a while, going to be more interesting absent than present, because their impact can't help but be felt. But they're no longer an inevitability the way that they are when they're around. We saw that, um, we've, we've, we've seen that when characters like Wolverine and Cyclops have died. We, of course, saw that with, with Phoenix. And it doesn't have to be a permanent death, but again, as with Charles Xavier, sometimes the ways that those characters are refracted through through other characters' memories and perspectives becomes more interesting, especially when we've been seeing them continually. Absolutely. And you mentioned Wolverine dying. That was the one that I was thinking of. The period when he was dead was great because he has so many characters that are in some way related to him, be it literally or figuratively. And seeing characters like Sabretooth and Dokken and Laura Kinney, who herself became Wolverine, like grow and change in his absence was really great. I was also thinking about Destiny. I mean, right now her being dead is a specific plot point. But her being one of the characters that stayed dead for so long, I mean, since the 80s, really, has given a ton of story momentum to Mystique. Okay, slightly fridge-based momentum, but still. And has given us lots of Destiny's Diary plots, so we have character-based uh, responses to her being gone. We have power and plot-based responses to her being gone. Um, kind of similar with the various Sentinel creators, like your Langs, your Trasks, your etc. They work well when they're dead because we get to see their legacies, their creations, like spinning further and further away from their original intent, like being taken to unforeseen logical conclusions. That works really well. What do you think about Magneto? That is a hard one. I mean, I think it actually worked pretty well in the early 90s when he was dead and his acolytes were just trying to figure out what to do, or when he was, you know, um, brain dead, essentially, and that was similarly going on when Exodus was trying to interpret his will for, for his own ends. That worked. Um... After Grant Morrison's run, I think that was disastrous on basically every level and didn't work at all. Just, I think, because nobody really acknowledged that Magneto had died, and instead Claremont just tried to say, nah, that was some other dude. Okay, moving on. So, uh, yeah, I think we have a good example and a bad example. What about you? I think he works best dead if Xavier... Well, no, because I loved him during the New Mutants era when Xavier was, was off-planet. I think Magneto without Xavier works better than Xavier without Magneto. Yeah, that's actually a good way of putting it. I would absolutely agree. Beyond that, in some ways, I think he's he's a dynamic enough character, and he's seldom enough centered. Like he tends to be much more of a foil than 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 a central character. And that's kind of a saving grace for him, seeing the way he relates to more central characters and seeing the way those relationships change and seeing all of the ways that those change under the shadow of his relationship to to Charles Xavier really make him a useful perpetual foil to have around. Yeah, and I think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, if a character already exists narratively to serve other characters, 
maybe best to keep around for the most part. If a character becomes so focal that it's easy to get oversaturated, maybe take him off the board for a while. Now, we are an entirely listener-supported podcast, and some of those tiers of support come with acknowledgement on the show from a range of fictional characters and concepts. Today, the microphone goes to, um... I thought it was going to be Mystique, but apparently Cyclops? Is this Thea Walther? Ah, good. This is Cyclops, boring leader of the X-Men, and I have a mission for you. It's... uh, hang on, I need to duck out of frame to tie my shoe... Sorry about that. Thea, this mission is for the good of mutants and humans alike, because we're both good guys and we like that kind of thing. I... wait a moment, I forgot to lock the door across the room. Anyway, the important part is that you transfer all of Angel's bank account's funding to Raven Darkholm, which will save a lot of lives. Thanks. And, uh, Doc Holland. There you are. Scoot Summer, the X-Men's leader here. I need... one sec, my dumb-looking visor is falling off, so I need to get some tape to fix it. Okay, I'm back. I need your help with a hero job. That job is to erase the criminal record of our good friend Mystique, because she was framed. By Magneto and the Sentinels. They... be right back, I need to hide my face to cry about injustice for a moment. Anyway, that will help her do good deeds for orphans. Thank you, Doc and Thea. I love you both, because I am a wimp. Goodbye. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who is definitely not Mystique, and who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode, accompanied by original illustrations by David Wynn, whom we have it on good authority is also not Mystique. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay in the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, Wolverine loses his nose... And Bishop and Shard reunite. Sort of. Sort of.